Ready to add a big dose of positivity and empowered perspective to your day? You've come to the right place. Welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. Here, we tackle everything from imposter syndrome and confidence building to the best advice on how to lead yourself through life pivots, including the ones that knock you flat. For the past three years, I've talked to hundreds of experts about their stories. Here, you'll find their actionable advice and lessons, as well as my own tools that you can put to use in your own life. Stick around. I think you'll find this investment in you well worth it. Hey, friend, welcome to another episode of She Said, She Said podcast. I am so happy to have you here today. Change is hard. I'm not telling you anything, am I? In many ways, we're really not wired for it. And that is incredibly odd since change is also so inevitable. It's also critical for risk tolerance and for building the confidence that you need in order to take those risks in the first place. So how do we build greater capacity to embrace change? How do we build that capacity for embracing risk? This week's guest has charted her entire career doing just that. Barbara Novick is one of eight founding partners of BlackRock. BlackRock is, of course, the world leader in asset management. The firm has almost $9 trillion under management currently, but it didn't start out that way. Barbara and her seven co-founders had a simple plan, and through their focus on leading and embracing change, they've grown that firm into the incredibly successful and influential organization that it is today. Barbara's a trailblazer. She was not only one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful women at BlackRock, she's also topped the list of most powerful women in all of finance. In many ways, Barbara has been at the forefront of leading and inspiring change, not only in the asset management world, but really in finance and on Wall Street. Friend, this conversation that you're about to hear runs a little bit longer than most, but I promise you, once you have a chance to hear from Barbara, you'll understand why. We cover so many topics in addition to this broader topic of change that she provides such great advice on how to navigate the workplace. We talk about the importance of understanding your own value and how to position yourself. We talk about mentorship programs, including matchy programs that sometimes corporate entities put together that oftentimes don't work as well. She gives great advice for how to really leverage those and get real value out of them. We talk about when and how to speak up in meetings, why that's important, how to think about that. She also gives great advice on what to do when you have a problem, when you go to your boss with a problem and the best way to position those things so that you really differentiate yourself. We also talk about how best to serve your stakeholders and to really drill down into what their biggest challenges are. And of course, the importance of listening. Again, so much packed into this conversation. I urge you to listen to the whole thing, even if you have to click on it twice to do so. I hope you will. I really think there's great value in Barbara Novick's tremendous advice and wisdom. As always, I'd love to know what you think. Here's our conversation with Barbara Novick. Barbara, welcome to She Said, She Said. Well, thank you for having me. Well, I'm delighted to have you. You and I um, have been friends for a number of years, and we should probably talk about how we met at some point in this conversation, <laughs> because that's kind of an interesting story, too. But I want to talk about you. I want to talk about your career. I want to talk about this idea of embracing change. You have just transitioned from a vice chair position at BlackRock, where you were a founding partner some 33 years ago, and you are transitioning into a senior advisory role. Maybe talk a little bit about your current status. 
So um, I made the decision that I wanted to certainly change the mix of work-life balance. And initially, the plan was to leave in 2020. Um, but of course, we all know what happened in March, and that extended for an extra year. And so it's really quite new. Uh, my last official day was February 1st. And I'm taking what I call a sabbatical, uh, where I'm not really saying yes to much of anything and trying to sort of figure out what my priorities are, how I want to spend my time. Um, became a grandmother just before COVID oh, hit. Congratulations. So that, has, that has been exciting. They lived with us for a good part of it and just went home. So a lot of new things, a lot of adjusting to and trying to recalibrate and find the new sweet spot. Yeah, yeah, it's very exciting. When Barbara and I first met, she was in the process of sort of hiring a replacement for a job that was very similar to the one that I was doing at another organization. And Barbara told me, I'm on the cusp of retiring. Now, this was more than a decade ago. I'm pretty sure just about a decade ago, um, about 11 years, I think. And obviously, that did not happen. <laughs> so I laugh when you say you are transitioning out and you're taking this sabbatical because you have been known to get pulled back into the organization from time to time. So the last time or when we first met was right after the great financial crisis. And um, at that time, unfortunately, my parents were quite sick. And of course, on the other end, I had three teenagers at home. So I was feeling very pressured by that sandwich generation problem. Yeah. And I felt like it was time to take a step back. And I really thought I was going to retire. Um, as things turned out, you know, the world blew up and we had the great financial crisis and there was a push for regulatory change and, and financial regulatory reform became quite a big project. In 2009, uh, we thought it was going to be a couple of years. It was something I could do part time. And so as I started going out and benchmarking what did other firms do? You were very kind and, and generous with your time, as were several other people. And I saw a number of different models, and I was intrigued. And so I decided that I would actually lead it uh, for a while. And it, again, I thought it was maybe two, three years part-time. Um, as it turned out, financial regulatory reform took on legs. And it was a decade, right. literally a decade of global and pretty flat out as it ramped up. Uh, we even wrote a report, a retrospective on the 10 years of reform back in January of 2020, thinking financial stability was in a good spot. And this chapter was now done from a public policy standpoint. Little did we know that uh, soon we would have another round of it. I mean, change, uh, as I talk about in the intro, is inevitable. That's certainly been true for you. It's really true for everyone. The question is, and the trick is, what do you do when you face it? And how do you create the environment that allows you to also create change for yourself and for your organization? Maybe talk a little bit about how you, as you reflect on the past number of years and on your career, and you think about this idea of change, talk about what you've learned. So let's look at it as two pieces. One is, I'll say, a professional, um, how you build a business piece. And the other is more of our personal, how you individually embrace change. So in terms of building the business, Keep in mind, when we started BlackRock, we had zero assets under management. Hard to imagine when you, you look at the numbers today, you say, nine trillion. Well, where did all that come from in 33 years? Um, but literally, we started with zero. And so the way we built the business was we went out and we asked people questions. We asked them to talk about their business and understand where they had challenges, where they needed help. And then we came back with ideas for how to solve their problems. And so when I say embrace change in that sense, it was looking for where people needed to do something differently 
and help them essentially embrace change. And, and a good example was a number of insurance companies ran into trouble with guaranteed investment contracts in the defined contribution plans. Mm. And all of the plan sponsors said to us, I have this very small contract. It's a tiny percentage of my plan. And I'm spending all of my time on that problem. So we came back and we said, well, we've created, we have an idea. We've created a new product, which would be called a synthetic guaranteed investment contract. And it addresses the problem you have so that you would now have ownership of a basket of assets rather than an exposure to an insurance company. And that turned out to be a real winner because it solved a problem they had. So, you know, that's one type of embracing change. Mm -hmm. Another type is where there are merger situations. Um, I find that the employees who look forward and say, how can I turn this into an opportunity? What things can I bring to it? What, what role could I have tend to flourish and be very successful and stay with the organization a long time? On the other hand, the employees who say, I kind of like it the way it was. Mm. I call it pining for the past, right. pining for a past that isn't here anymore. Right. Um, those employees become disaffected and many times end up leaving because they just, they don't see what they want where they are anymore. And so that embracing change on a personal level can really make a big difference from a career perspective. And the last example I'll give is actually um, my own with public policy. I really did think I was going to retire. And yet this sort of got dangled in front of me as something quite different than what I had been doing. And I was intrigued. You know, it was an opportunity to learn, continue to work with people I knew and liked and, and had a great relationship with, set up essentially a, a startup on an existing platform. And it turned out to be just a wonderful experience. And that's why I did it for 10 years. So I have so many questions. Uh, it's almost hard to know exactly where to, where, where to jump in because I want to make sure that we talk about where that capacity for change comes from. So why don't we start with that piece? And then I want to bounce back and I want you to go back to when you, when you started, when you co-founded BlackRock along with seven other partners, but the fear involved in that. But let's start with your origin story and what about the way you were raised or how you've approached challenges in life? What, where did that capacity for embracing and really seeking change, where does that come from for you? I'm not sure. I mean, my father was extremely influential in my life and he had a business. Uh, he ran a, a retail, like an army and Navy store. Mm -hmm. And I worked with him a lot. And all of us did. I have three siblings. And I think we learned a lot about business. I'm not sure we necessarily learned so much about change, but we did see how businesses run, the idea of putting customers first and really putting yourself in their shoes, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, so probably something to do with that and just seeing how his business evolved. He, he took on different lines of merchandise. You know, He changed things around from time to time. Um, and it was always looking forward and trying to figure out what's next, right? The old trend, you know, the, certainly with clothing, you could have fads of whether it's sneakers or it's, uh, you know, sportswear, whatever it is, there, there's always some old fad and then there's some new fad and trying to figure out which one is which uh, is, is a, an art, not a yeah. science. What about competition? Was competition a big thing for you? Did you compete in sports or in other areas that taught you some of those skills of winning and losing and getting right back in the game of learning from what you didn't do well when you lost and continuing to put yourself out there? Did you have those experiences as a kid? Unfortunately, when I was growing up, there were very little in women's sports. You could be a gymnast, you could be a ballerina, uh, you probably could play field hockey, but we just didn't have a lot of women's competitive sports. 
Um, I did play, you know, in, in college, you know, I did some intramural stuff, but nothing really serious. And when I look around today, I, I coached my daughter's soccer teams from when they were really quite young. And at one point I took an article I saw on Title IX. I gave it to my daughter and I said, I want you to understand, this is why I'm coaching. Because I want girls to get that competitive experience. So it was something actually, when I started my career, I found very difficult. It didn't come naturally. I didn't have certainly a team type um, sport experience. And I had to sort of learn it as an adult, which is much harder. How did you learn it as an adult? I, I, I think that's pretty dramatic. When you weren't raised with those opportunities to compete, learning that later in life can be really challenging. So how, how did you do that? It was hard, uh, but you do learn, right? You, you look around, you see other people, um, you pick yourself up when you fall flat on your face and you move on. Um, but it was quite different then. And of course, not only were there not women's sports, um, but when I joined the workforce, very often, I was the only woman in the room for many, many years. Um, so I had to really observe how the guys did it and try and find my own path. Not so easy, but it's doable. Yeah. Any, any advice for others who may find themselves in that situation? It is becoming less likely that you will be the only woman in the room. But um, you and I, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of years difference between us, but there's a little bit. And at the point in which I joined PwC, I was often the only woman in the room, but not for long. <laughs> it, is, it has begun to evolve. And I suspect that it, that, that is less true today, uh, that there are more women in rooms in which there might have been one or two of us previously. And in your case, you might have been the only one. But maybe advice for women that find themselves in more male, still more male dominated industries or sectors um, about what you learned in those, in those situations that was different, maybe if you were in a room full of women? Well, I always focused on, I'll say, getting the work done, whatever the work was. Um, at BlackRock, I was very focused on being a revenue producer and building our business. And the numbers don't lie. It's very easy to measure. Did you get more assets? Did you get more revenue? Is this profitable business to the firm or not? Um, I find I think a lot of women early on get diverted into more, I'll say support roles. Right. It might not be the right word for it, but rather than being in a frontline business development role or a portfolio management role, they're somehow supporting those efforts much more difficult to measure individual success or not. When you're in a sales or a business development, it's the numbers or the numbers. So I think that that's an important experience to have and one that helps you develop confidence because you can see how you impact the organization. If you then decide to take a different path later, You've already proven that you can add value and it might be more difficult metrics, but you don't have to wonder about the starting point. How about advice for women who may find themselves either by choice or by circumstance somewhat sidelined from some of those bigger jobs that ultimately lead to the bigger C-suite jobs and maybe even the CEO type type job. How do you, what advice do you give them to break out of roles that can be sort of support related and find those opportunities, maybe learning to own their value and be able to speak assertively, maybe talk about things that you saw that worked well. Um, because you were not in those those supportive roles for the most part, right? You were you were actually in revenue generating roles that positioned you very well as an executive. But maybe provide some lessons and perspective and advice. So the first thing is, don't assume people are mind readers. If there's something you want to do, 
uh, career change, if you will, within a company, let people know and be patient about it, right? Don't say, if I don't get this opportunity by next week, I'm out of here. But more of a, you know, my goals, and you have some kind of review, almost every company has some kind of review at least once a year, if not multiple times a year. And so whether it's in an informal type of review or formal review, be clear about what your own goals are. You know, I'd like to work in a sales organization, or I'd like to work in a capital committing type of role. You know, what, what steps do I need to do to get there? Are there particular classes or training? Is there someone I can work for or have as a mentor? What, what can I do to get from where I am to where I want to be? And be clear that you're willing to be patient so that it doesn't have this pressure feel to it like, oh boy, we've got to do something right, right this minute. But more, is this somebody who's a high performer who we can work with? and help get to that spot. How about learning to really understand your value strategically? The, the, the challenge I often see is when um, women maybe don't understand how to take what they already know and package that and position it for where they want to go, right? So that it, you know, it's colloquially, we talk about owning your value and that's all lovely. But when we really break that down, what we're talking about is what you know how to do that might work in another area that you're aspiring to. Maybe talk about advice for how you do that well. So a classic scenario, you read about this in a lot of the literature is, if a job has, let's say, three key skill sets and a guy has two of them, he goes in and says, pick me. I'm perfect for the job. Right. <laughs> right. And a woman goes in and says, pick me. You know, I can do two of them really well. But that third one, I promise you, I'll learn it. And that's just a, a strategic mistake. Right. So. The pick me and the projection of confidence, and if you already have two of the three pieces, your own confidence that you will learn it, and you don't have to tell them that, mm -hmm. and a willingness to be out of your comfort zone, right? A lot of people, um, and I don't know that this is so gender specific, but it probably does have a gender component, but a lot of people are really comfortable in what they know. And they're not really looking to get out of their comfort zone. They're not really looking to learn new things in that uncomfortable way. And I've been there, you know, the imposter syndrome, like, how did I get this position? I don't right. know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you might make some mistakes and I, I made some really funny ones, but, you know, be willing to accept that, you know, perfection isn't, isn't the objective. It's learning, growing, doing a really good job and filling in whatever pieces you don't have. But if you have the foundation, and a lot of times people come to me and you know they ask about a job they heard is going to be open or something that's been posted or you know there's somehow um, they have an interest. And you know, I'll work with them to try and strategize, well, what pieces does it need? What pieces do you have? And how do you present that? and present it with that confidence because that's, what's really going to impress people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really goes back to where we started this conversation around getting comfortable with change and, and change by definition means embracing things that you don't always have the answer to. In fact, you probably rarely do. You have to figure it out. That is part of the, the nature of change, right? It's new. Right. <laughs> so it's interesting as you sort of talk about this. I think, uh, you know, as you're, as you're talking about these different components and breaking it down, um, I, I can only imagine if I talk to some of the women and men that you have mentored, that they would say, Barbara is just an amazing mentor um, and has been an amazing guide for me career-wise because of the strategic way that you think about this. Very clear, very practical, very strategic. Maybe provide some advice for our audience in thinking about that mentor uh, mentee relationship and how 
you have thought about it in your own career and what's worked well, and then how you've advised others to embrace this notion. So I know it's not popular with HR people to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I have found mentoring works really well when you have a relationship with someone and you're working on a project and it might be someone not in your direct line of, of responsibility, but you know, an interdepartmental project, something where you have a reason to interact with that person and you develop that kind of relationship and rapport. And they're willing to come to you with questions that might have nothing to do with the project you're working on. Those mentor relationships I find flourish and last many, many years, sometimes last beyond the job that they're in, even if they leave the company. What I also find is the forced mentoring where it's a forced pairing, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to have this program and we're putting these people in the program and we're going to have these people as the mentors. And now let's match you up. Right. You have really not much in common and some of them connect and that's nice. But as a percentage, I think it's a very low number. So I do think um, encouraging managers at all different levels, it doesn't have to be really senior, but mid-level managers, encouraging managers to look back and say, who can I help and how? Mm -hmm. And I actually put that challenge out to the senior women we had at BlackRock in about, must have been about year 2000. Um, I hosted a first ever uh, women at BlackRock event. And I said, you know, when I look around at other companies, I read some stories and I don't want to say which company, but there was one that was at that point in the New York Times in a Sunday business. And it showed these sort of pig book kind of uh, pictures, right, from like a fraternity. And I say a fraternity because guess what? It was like all white men. Right. And then when you read the story that went with it, and this was a, a major company in the United States, when you read the story, anyone who was either female or any other category that you would think of today as minority who had gotten close to that level said one of their regrets was they never looked back and helped other people like themselves advance. So even though they'd gotten really close and they'd never really made it, or maybe a couple of them did, they, they recognized that they were like sort of unicorns. And I said to the other women, there were only a few of us. And I said, you know, we don't want to be those people mm -hmm. in 10 years. Let's all look back and identify women at that point, women who we can mentor. And you pick, this isn't an HR matching thing. You pick someone who you have some exposure to that you can reach out and you can help. And it could be easy things. You know, we'd go into a room and we'd sit down. And, and this is so classic, right? You sit down at the big conference table and you look around and you realize, you know, every guy, even the most junior guy in the meeting walks in, sits at the table. And then you, you watch and, you know, the women, even some of the sort of mid-level kind of senior women, they come in and they sit in the bleachers, right? If it's a big, big you know, room with, with seating around it. And I, I would say to people, um, you know, come over here at the beginning of a meeting, you know, before everyone sat down and I'd have a seat and I'd say, you know, sit in this seat. And they'd say, no, 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 I'm okay. They No, just sit down. And then after the meeting, I'd say to them, you have to literally take a seat at the table. You're not going to have somebody ask you all the time and you're no less than that other person. So when you walk in a room, come on time, come early. And if there's a seat open, just take it. And I had people say to me years later, you know, that was like such an eye opener, which it sounds so trite and so silly. But in fact, if they've never done it and no one's ever told them to do it, they don't know. Right. And so it's those kinds of things, sometimes very little, sometimes bigger. You know, I have a problem. I'm having, you know, challenge with a, a manager or with, you know, a coworker and, you know, helping them think through it and talk through it. You know, so it could be something much more important than taking a seat at the table, but 
It's being more cognizant when you see someone getting talked over in a meeting saying, oh, I want to hear what Carol has to say. Right. Or Carol had a good idea. Or when you hear that same idea repeated down the (laughs) row, and it's what she just said, oh, that sounds just like what she said. Right. And just being the third party who jumps in and says that empowers the person. And that's, I don't know if that's mentoring. I don't know if it's sponsoring. I don't know what we call that, but I would call it just supporting other women and making sure their voices are heard so that they're getting credit for their ideas, that they're being seen as a thought leader, as as a problem solver. And those are the people who get those next opportunities. So it does matter. Yeah, that's really, it's, that's such great perspective. As you were talking, I was thinking too about advice that I often hear given to some of our younger listeners who maybe are just launching their career about the importance of speaking up in meetings. And I'm often struck by this advice because, you know, that's, that can be obviously really important if you have something to say, but (laughs) the trick is making sure that you actually have something to say and have thought about what those things might be maybe in advance of the meeting, but maybe talk a little bit about the importance of owning your, owning your space, making yourself heard. Think about, you know, how you can position yourself to have the impact and influence that you need in order to keep growing in your career. I do think it's good to be heard, but I also think you're right. You know, just babbling, no thank you. So it's not just to, you know, hear your own voice, but to contribute something. Right. And if it is a brainstorming session of some sort, where there's a new idea being talked about, or there's a problem being addressed. If you come in with real ideas on solutions, even if they're not fully formed, that's valuable to contribute. Um, I'll say the same thing in one-on-one, right? So, you know, many managers um, are not terribly keen about having someone come in and complain about X, Y, Z. You know, this process isn't good. We're not doing this the right way. You know, life's not fair, whatever it is, right? There's a whiny component when it's presented like that. Right. Whereas the person who comes in and says, you know, I don't think we're doing this right. I think we could do it more efficiently. I think we could do it with fewer errors. I think we could do it, you know, make clients happier, whatever the what you know, improvement. And here's how that person, and that's what I always tried to be, that person gets noticed. So I I give a great example. I had a really young guy and uh, we had these client reports and it was early stages of BlackRock. So we're doing everything manually. It was literally like, okay, client report, write that one from scratch, next one, right? And it was was really sort of uh, mind numbing for the analysts to do that work. And this guy came to me and he said, you know, some of the, some parts of these reports should be automated. We can grab the information from a database. We could have standard uh, pie charts and, and bar charts, and it could be all set up to just be automatic, push this button, produce at least this portion of the report. Not necessarily the commentary, but a lot of the other pure analytics. And I said to him, I completely agree. And my own background was in computer stuff. And I said, uh, I would love to be able to do that, but I just don't have the skill set and and I don't have the resources from our IT department to make this a priority. Um, And he said, this little wry smile, he goes, well, I have a computer science degree. (laughs) I said, really? (laughs) That sounds good. (laughs) Go get him. (laughs) And so this kid, and he was a kid, he was like right out of college. He figured out how to access the database. And along the way, he he crashed the database, which was uh, a little problematic. It was the production database. But uh, we we said, uh, you know, sort of, please forgive us. (laughs) Uh, But I said to him, 
you know, quietly, you're really close. If you're crashing the database, you're really close. Just don't do it during like business hours. So sure enough, he figured out how to access exactly what we needed. And he automated huge percentage of what was a very rote process. Um, and he was a hero. He was a hero, not just to me, but to all those other analysts. And it was a great example is we just didn't have the resources to do it in what I would say the proper way would have mm-hmm. been. Um, but here was a guy who kind of on his own time, he was willing to do it as a side project and figure it out. And so he had come in to say, you know, he didn't like doing these reports over and over again. That was the whiny part, but I know how to fix it and I'm willing to do it. Well, that was wonderful. I love that. And I also love the piece of your story where you kind of gave him permission to fail. I mean, it's not that you wanted him to fail or that you wanted to disappoint customers by not having this data, but you also recognized that this was a learn, you know, this was going to be a learning, right? And that when he screwed it up, you didn't fire him when he screwed it up, you presumably helped him fix it and get it back on track so that it would be better the next time that he attempted it. Exactly. I love that. I'd love to go back to the very beginning stages of BlackRock when you and your seven colleagues, where did this big idea come from? And was that scary for you? And how did you, how'd you sort of plow through that? So the big idea was basically Larry Fink and Ralph Schlossstein had been thinking about this. And, and were you concept- colleagues at, the, you were colleagues at the time? I worked for Larry. I worked for Larry. In fact, um, of the original eight, five came from First Boston and, and four of us worked for Larry and three came from Lehman and, and the other two worked for Ralph. So their idea was to create a buy side firm that would have the analytics and capital markets knowledge of a sell side firm. So that sounds a little technical, but basically the Wall Street firms had an edge over the asset managers because they had more analytics, they had the ability to project cash flows on mortgage securities, they had more information on derivatives, they had a lot of tools at their um, beck and call, which the asset management firms who were buying securities didn't have. Mm-hmm. So that was our concept. Let's go out, let's create um, a buy side firm that's going to have both the technology and the capital markets knowledge to I wouldn't say compete with Wall Street, but to interact with Wall Street on an equal footing basis. Mm. And at the time, um, it wasn't really common to talk about risk management, but that's what we set out. And we said to people, you need to understand what risks you're taking. You need to understand how these securities work. You need to understand in different environments how they will perform. And that was the firm we were creating. So risk management today, everybody talks about it. Of course, it's so central, so core. Mm -hmm. But back then, it was this oddity. And I think we really changed the industry in many ways. So that was the the origin. In terms of the the personal side, I I describe our startup as being a dot-com before there were dot-coms, right? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't about the internet, but it was a group of people, eight people in this case, Uh, jumping out a window together with a minimal safety net and saying, you know what, I'm I'm jumping with the right people. There's a book, Good to Great, you know, get on the bus and then drive the bus. So we're getting on the bus with the right people and we're going to figure out where to drive it. We had a pretty simple business plan. We had a venture investor who gave us some security for at least the first year. And then after that, we had to deliver. And in fact, by the end of the first year, we started in March, April, by the end of that calendar year, we were profitable. Mm. And it wasn't a lot of profit, but it was some. And by the next year, we actually were doing quite well. So we, you know, it was interesting. We never really looked back. We had a few, I'll say failures or or missteps, but overall it was um, overwhelmingly positive and additive each thing that we did. So we got to a point of profitability and and viability relatively quickly for a Mm -hmm. startup company. Did you have a nest egg personally? 
And how and how old were you? Sort of where, where were you in your in your in your career lifespan? <laughs> Did you have kids? Were you married? So that those are important questions. Um, at the time, I was married, uh, had no children did not own a house. And so it was all new and exciting. And of course, the downside was, if this doesn't work, you go back and get a real job, right? right. There was, I won't say there was very little risk to it, but the risk was certainly mitigated mm-hmm. by my personal circumstances. And that was true of I'm thinking, a couple of people got married in the first year or two that we were in business, but I would say um, of the eight people, three already had at least one child and the other five did not. Yeah. yeah. So a very different risk profile. For sure. I mean, it, it's a whole different calculus when you have little people who are right. depending on you, right? Yeah. Even or bigger people, as the case may be. Um, you know, you. I know you get this question. I get this question a lot about work-life balance and how you think about that. And a lot of people are like, oh, well, first of all, get rid of the idea of balance. There's nothing about it that's balanced. But but give us your perspective on that whole idea of work and life and finding the right mix or prioritization or how have, how have you thought about that? You In the beginning of our conversation, you talked about um, the, at that point in which you almost retired and there you had a lot on your plate. You were taking care of parents and you had teenage children and the teenage years are some of the toughest that you have as a parent. Um, Talk about how you thought about this and advice that you would have for our listeners. So I'm not sure that work-life balance really can be simultaneous, but there's a few things. And the first one is I tell women, especially invest in yourself. So you know, people take vacations and sometimes they take really nice over the top vacations, whether it's skiing or a cruise or a trip to Europe and and seeing museums, whatever it is they want to do. Um, And a lot of those vacations are great, but would you rather have a week that's great or have a nanny that gives you peace of mind when you walk out the door in the morning that your kids or with someone you trust, you like, is going to do good things with them, is going to exercise good judgment if there's an emergency or a problem. So think about that. Right. doesn't mean you can never take a vacation, but maybe you tone down the vacation you take, or maybe you take one less vacation, and you use that money to invest in yourself and get the proper support. And that was something, that was an insight I got very early on is, you needed a support network at home to be able to do the big jobs, whether it's the travel that's involved, it's late hours, it's dinner out, whatever it is, you can't do that. Or I certainly could not do that without that peace of mind. And I had a one-year gap where I didn't have that because a person I had got, got quite sick. And so I had a couple of temporary people and that was one of the most difficult years because I just kept questioning, like, should I be doing this? Is this a mistake? You know, and then fortunately, maybe it was only six months, we were able to get through it and the person was able to come back. But it was a really difficult stretch. And I wondered, how do people do this if they don't have that good support? And the support can be anything. You know, it could be a nanny, it could be an au pair, it could be, uh, you know, your mother, it could be you know, your sister could be a network of, of women friends. And I had sort of a little of each. Mm-hmm. I had my mother-in-law was really helpful. I had a network of women in the neighborhood. We would look out for each other and help each other in a pinch. Um, our nannies would help each other in a pinch. Like it was really sort of an unspoken contract, if you will, that if you needed help because someone was sick or someone you know couldn't come, you could bring your kid over and, and there were no questions asked. We would just help each other. So there's a lot of different ways of doing that in, in the modern world. Not everyone lives near their family. Not everyone you know, has um, that kind of support. So find other comparable things. 
And uh, but most important, be willing to invest in yourself. Don't underinvest in household help because that peace of mind is just so important to be able to do your job. Yeah. I don't know if you ever took um, a break of any kind, a career break during those, during those years or not, but I'm sure you must know women that have maybe thoughts and advice on how to do that smartly, especially if you think you're going to want to go back into the, either back into your career or maybe make a career pivot, maybe advice for how you do that. Well, I'm going to bring up the coronavirus and COVID. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is a perfect example. So many women are taking a break either by choice or because out of necessity in order to care for their young children. Right. So the negative part is many women have dropped out because it's not really feasible from a long-term perspective to homeschool your children and work a full-time job. Okay. And my heart goes out to those women. I just don't see like when it was a going to be a two or three months thing. That's one thing. Now it's a year and a half thing. That's right. a di- totally different thing. So, and, and the burden unfortunately does fall more on the women than it does on the men in most families, not all, but in most. So that's, that's the downside, but the positive side is the use of technology. I worked from home one day a week for more than 20 years. And even at the 20 year mark, I was still getting comments from people. Oh, how was your long weekend? And <laughs> oh, it's great that you, you, you have Fridays off. And I'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. I work really hard on Fridays. I just do it sitting at my desk at home. And that was my offset to all the travel and, and other things. It didn't work every week, but I'd say three out of four, I would be working in my home office. But my home office had all the right technology. It has a desktop. It has a laptop. It has an iPad. It has, I have all the tools I could possibly need to do my job. I don't have a secretary here, but that's okay. I can, you know, muddle through and and do a lot of those things um, myself. So that learning today is for everyone because the skeptics who thought you can't concentrate at home, how could you ever get anything done? They were forced to do it. Right. And so my advice to women today would be different than it would have been pre-COVID. My advice today would be, if you really feel overwhelmed and you want to take a break, ask for a break that includes some kind of part-time, something remote, something that's less than I'm fully out versus I'm fully in. Because I saw it myself when I told Larry that I really needed to cut back with my parents and my kids. And like I was all over the world, the phone would ring three in the morning. It's a doctor calling back. You got to take the call. You'll never get that doctor on the line again if you don't pick it up. I I just couldn't do that anymore. But when I told him I wanted to leave, he said, why don't you work part time? And I didn't even ask for it. I went in saying, I'm done. Right. And he said, no, 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 you know, give me a year full time with some flexibility to do with what you need to, but we'll have a proper transition, et cetera. And then stick around. There'll be things for you to do. There'll be projects for you to work on. And it wasn't even defined. Then, of course, because of the great financial crisis, it ended up being the public policy and to start up a, a unit that didn't exist. But because I still had I'll say two fingers in it, two out of 10. um, It meant I was in the flow of what was going on. Um, You know, I stayed current on the industry and the firm. And I was someone that they thought of when they had a new need and they needed to put someone in charge. It wasn't like, oh, well, she already has so much on her plate. It's like, oh, she's sort of the senior person with, uh, that's a free agent, maybe she can help us figure this out. And initially it was just to figure it out. That was when I visited you for the benchmarking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As it turned out, I ended up raising my hand and saying, okay, you know, actually, I think this looks really interesting. I could probably do this for you. Yeah. So I think trying to stay in it, even if it's on a limited basis, and then 
being open to a conversation. I've had many women over the years who worked for me in what I called flexible arrangements. Mm -hmm. One worked three days a week in the office and two at home. Somebody else worked um, at home and all sorts of odd hours because what she was doing was a lot of writing projects. It really didn't matter what time she was doing them. And she came to New York. She would live someplace else. She came to New York once a month for at least one night overnight to see colleagues and you know maintain relationship. So you know, and and I could give a, a bunch of different examples. Each one was different, but the key thing was we were able to retain talented women by giving them some flexibility that they needed, and keeping them involved. And then as their own circumstances changed. Some of them came and said, you know what, I'm actually ready to do a full-time job now, or I'm ready to do an in-office job, whatever the the accommodation. And I say accommodation, I I hate to use that word because accommodation makes it sound like you're doing someone a favor. I put it as it's a two-way street. If it works for the employee and it works for the employer, it's a good arrangement. If it works for one and not the other, it's a bad arrangement. Right. So, you know, any sort of flexible work schedule has to be contemplated as this is a business arrangement. It's not an accommodation of a, you know, do someone a favor. It's an accommodation to make the partnership between you work well. Yeah. COVID, as you said before, has given us this lens into what the world would look like if as many people who who can transition their jobs to some kind of a virtual environment unfortunately not everyone is able to do that for obvious reasons but an awful lot of people could talk about what you think the world will look like coming out of covid and how things may have evolved because i'm 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 a little bit surprised by um several of my colleagues in the corporate world are so anxious to get back into an office setting that there's this this desire to really force employees back. And I I just have to scratch my head and say, is that really the best answer when we figured out how to make this more, a lot more flexibility work? And it just gives you more capacity potentially for doing more things and doing them a bit differently. Give me your assessment of what you think the world is going to look like and how do we how do we get that balance right? I think the future of work is one of the most interesting topics right now. You see a lot of people and I'll put an age on it, um, certainly 50 plus who have always worked in an office and who are extremely uncomfortable with the idea that people can be on a team and be decentralized. Um, You have at the other end, the 30 and under set, who have grown up with a phone and a laptop. And, you know, computers are just so much part of everything they've done right? This was why WeWorks, I think, took off so much. There's a whole generation out there who doesn't really think about coming to the office in a traditional kind of way. That doesn't mean they're not social. It doesn't mean they don't want to see people, right? right? But they're very, very comfortable working remotely and, and doing things in a very different kind of tempo. So, and then there's that middle where it's a little fluid, <laughs> we'll call it. Um, but I think what, what COVID showed people was that the flexibility you get when you work at home, you might work really hard, but maybe you take an hour off in the middle of the day, or maybe you're just saving two hours, one at the beginning and the end of the day, or maybe you're not getting dressed up except from the neck up. Whatever the flexibility is, you're seeing that you can have some better work-life balance than without. And you're seeing like, if you need to go to the dentist or get a haircut, you don't have to take the day off or your kid, you know, assuming kids go back to school soon, (laughs) your kid has a play. So what if you take off an hour in the middle of the day and go to the school event, you have to take the whole day off. So I think people are going to see that they value that flexibility. And that's going to be very difficult for employees to give up. But as you said, you have the, the most seniors saying, well, this is how we get innovation, this is how we get collaboration, et cetera. 
I'm going to say, I am a skeptic about that statement. I ran teams. My, my public policy team was in New York, Washington, San Francisco, Hong Kong, Tokyo, London, Brussels. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have that many people and we had seven locations. Right. I can assure you as a remote team, we were able to collaborate and we just got in a rhythm. We had a weekly call. We made sure that we kept each other up to date using you know, electronic tools. We, whether we were sitting in an office or we were sitting at home, we used all those same things. So actually our group was very easy to pivot to work from home because the relationship part was already there. We already worked that way. And then we supplemented it with once a year, we'd go someplace and do a, a on-site offsite, right? So we use our own conference rooms, but some people would travel to it. And I think that's this future work is you do need to have some personal relationships and some in-person because that informal does matter, but maybe you don't need it every day. Right. Maybe you can even physically change the layout of offices, right? For many years, a lot of the accounting firms and audit firms have had a hotel desk kind of concept, right? Right. And in the consulting firms, because people are out and about and they're at clients so much. So what if you had a hoteling concept for some part of your real estate and you had, I don't know if you're familiar with the the company Convenes, where they have, um, it's like, conference space where they'll have a a main room they'll have some breakout rooms they'll have some food stations like they'll have a bunch of different things so you can have a flow of an event on a given day and they rent those spaces out well what if your own office had convened type space and that you deliberately came in maybe every group comes in once a week or once a month or something that you just spend the money differently. And yes, you see people in person, but you recognize that many of these firms, global firms, have global teams today. Right. They're not seeing each other in person every day. Yeah, excellent point. I always worked, I mean, for many years in something of a quasi-virtual environment because I was away from the mothership, so to speak. So, and you couldn't be there every second of the day. And so while that meant flying up for important meetings, it also meant there was an awful lot of the day-to-day interaction that almost always occurred, not on FaceTime or Zoom as we're, we're talking today, but through just the telephone <laughs> and <Right>. email. Right. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. Okay. I feel like I haven't even begun to do this conversation justice because there's just so much that we could talk about. And we've barely touched the topic of BlackRock and the culture and this idea of being really on the cutting edge of this idea of risk management. Maybe let's let's talk about that and then we'll kind of pivot to my final couple of questions. But but maybe talk about what it's like creating an organization around these concepts of embracing change and risk management, as you talked about before, maybe talk about what that has meant to you and what you've learned from approaching your work from that perspective. It's easy to look back in the rearview mirror and say, wow, you know, look at how much the industry has changed. And in many cases, look how we've led that change. Right now, when you're standing there 30 years ago, looking forward, um, you know, there is a little bit of a, a doubt someplace, a little seed of doubt that says, I wonder if this is going to work. <laughs> but I think the, the idea of going out in any industry, in any business, going out, talking to clients and asking them what their needs are, what their problems are, what things do they need solutions to. That is a winning strategy in any business. 
And then you could talk about, you know, stakeholder capitalism is a big topic today, right? Mm -hmm. And I say to people, like, think about who the stakeholders are. It's your clients. Well, why wouldn't you want to treat your clients well? Clients are your best source of new business, whether it's getting more assets or additional mandates or getting referrals or whatever it is. Like, that's a really important stakeholder. Employees, especially in a service business. Your company is your employees. If you're not hiring the best and treating people well and giving them career opportunities to both move around laterally and to move up the the ladder, you're not going to have employees very long. They're going to find somebody else, someplace else to go. So, you know, those are two of the most important stakeholders in addition to shareholders. And why wouldn't you want to treat them well and, and factor them into what you're doing? And we could talk about communities. It's a little bit of a different you know, set of issues. But you know, more and more, you see what's going on is you know, a company that does something that is, um, I'll say, negative, gets outed for it in social media, her arms, a reputation. It can't possibly be good for their long-term business, whether it's you know, a, a ability to get a license to do business or it's, a, you know, their brand and whether customers want to buy their product right. either way. So I do think the community's aspect and the reputation aspect is a very important one. And it's funny because I hear people talk about it as like, you know, shareholders versus other stakeholders. And I've always looked at it. And I think BlackRock has looked at it as, stakeholders are an important component of maximizing shareholder value at the end of the day. So I don't think, I think they could be very much symbiotic. I don't think they have to be in in conflict with each other. And our culture is one of of teamwork. Um, It's one of innovation. It's one of putting clients first. And those are principles that we've lived with and and from the outset, taking appropriate risk and, and really being careful. It's other people's money. Yeah. This is such a, a strange and volatile environment right now that you do find instances in which those different groups will be in conflict. What about advice for navigating that? You have to go back to the listening question. Really listen to what is it that one group or another believes or wants or needs. And more often than not, I think you find there's a solution to it. And there's a way of of navigating that gets what they want without somehow destroying something else. Now, I'm sure there are some examples that, that wouldn't be like that. But I think more often than not, you can find some way of bridging the gaps. Yeah, I love that. One final question before I let you go. I ask most everybody who comes on the podcast for maybe a single piece of advice. Maybe it's a life hack or a mantra. Maybe it's something that you wish you had known when you were just launching out in your career. Maybe it's some like North Star kind of kind of idea that you've told yourself over the last number of years. What would it be for you? Integrity. Your reputation is going to stick with you forever. It is much easier to destroy a reputation than it is to keep a good reputation. And integrity really, really counts. So if you see something that you think is wrong, you should speak up. Um, You should speak up with suggestions on how to fix and, and how to make it right. But I think where there's judgments to be made, you know, people would ask me over the years, oh, you know, do you think this is okay to do? And I'd say to them, you know, if it's gray, then the answer is no. Hmm. Like, is not everything in life is black and white, but just because it's legally okay doesn't mean that it's ethically right. And let's go with the, we want to be in the free and clear and always be doing what we feel. You know, I don't know if you say in your heart, but if someone said, do you think you really did the right thing? You wanna be able to say absolutely without any doubt and complete conviction. 
So I, I think that's the number one. There are too many examples of where people fell down on that and um, you know really hurt themselves, hurt them, their companies, and that should be the North Star. Yeah, I love that. Barbara, such a pleasure to be with you. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Friends, to learn a bit more about Barbara Novick, please check out the show notes for this episode, episode 151. Now, before I let you go, I need your help. If you're enjoying She Said, She Said podcast, I would love to hear from you. And there are several ways that you can contact me and send us some feedback. The first, if you are listening on iTunes, is to click the review button there, give us five stars, and then write just a few words about why you listen to She Said, She Said podcast. Those comments help others who are looking for podcasts like this one to find it. And I also love hearing from you. You can also direct message me on Instagram at Laura Cox Kaplan or at She Said, She Said podcast. And finally, you can use the contact link at the She Said, She Said podcast.com website to send me a message as well. Be sure to include why you listen and what we can do to continue to improve this content and make it even more meaningful for you. Friends, most of all, I am so grateful that you've chosen to spend some time with us today. I hope you found this little investment in you well worth it. I'll see you next time. Until then, take care.